Welcome to the Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart Podcast. I am your host, Karen Litzy. And in today's podcast, I sit down with Dr. Kelly Starrett. If you don't know who Kelly is, he is a coach, physical therapist, author, speaker, and creator of mobilitywad.com, which has re- which has revolutionized how athletes think about human movement and athletic performance. And his 2013 book release, Becoming a Supple Leopard, has become a New York Times and Wall Street Journal bestseller. His blog was voted number four in Outside Magazine's Top 10 Fitness Blogs of 2011. Breaking Muscles Top 10 Fitness Blogs, Healthline's Top 10 Health Blogs, and he and his work has been featured in Tim Ferriss's 4-Hour Body, Competitor Magazine, Inside Triathlon, Outside Magazine, Details, Power, and the CrossFit Journal. So he does teach the wildly popular CrossFit Movement and Mobility Trainer course and has been a guest lecturer at the American Physical Therapy Association's annual convention, Google the Perform Better Summit. Uh, Special Operations Medical Association, annual conference, police departments, elite military groups nationwide, as well as uh, professional sports teams. So Kelly is all over the place. So if you haven't heard of him, there are a lot of places where you can catch him. In this episode, like I said, we talk about uh, some questions from the audience concerning how he optimizes human performance. So we talk about the relationship that should be there between physical therapists and strength and conditioning coaches. And we talk about anatomical variations and how they impact, quote-unquote, ideal posture and movement, why we should be taking a 30,000-foot view in our culture of how we move, how Kelly reconciles pain science and biomechanics in his physical therapy practice, because, yes, he does see patients and how to build a large platform with the use of social media. So if you have something to say, Kelly has some great advice on how you can get that out to a wider audience. And we also talk about his non-for-profit stand-up kids, which he started with his wife, Juliet, and how that non-for-profit fits nicely into this year's PT Day of Service, which is October 15th. It's a Saturday. So if you haven't signed up for it, go to ptdayofservice.com and sign up for it. Okay, before we get to the interview, I just want uh, to thank audible.com for sponsoring today's podcast. So if you would like a free month and a free download, go to audibletrial.com slash healthy, wealthy, smart. They have over 180,000 titles to choose from. So you're sure to find something that you want to listen to. Again, just go to audibletrial.com slash healthy, wealthy, smart. So thank you all for tuning in today. It is a long podcast, so you may have to kind of split it up in your commute. Um, But a big thanks to Dr. Kelly Starrett. And everyone, enjoy today's episode. Hey, Kelly, welcome to the podcast. Happy to have you on. Thank you so much. Okay, so it's right now really, really early in the morning for you. Um, Not too bad for me. I'm uh, out here on the uh, East Coast. You're out on the West Coast. Um, And for those of people listening right now who maybe aren't as familiar with you, um, can you give a quick rundown as to what you do, what you're about, and then we've got a lot of questions to get to. Oh, good Lord. Uh, well, I'll tell you what. We, um, I'm a physical therapist and a strength coach. We, when I see sat down on the airplane next to me, I would tell you probably I'm a, I'm a teacher coach first, physio second. And when we spent the last part of our 10 years of work is really working in high-end 
performance strength conditioning, trying to step in and solve the huge conundrum of people in pain, incomplete mechanics, injury prevention, and also we have a full-time physio practice at the gym. So, and without walls, so that there is a clean integration between strength and conditioning, high performance, and you know rehab. And in our rehab, not only do we see Olympians and world champions and athletes, da da, we also see moms and dads. We we take care of the, the community practice. So we see the continuum. Um, you know, we we have done a lot of writing. We have a course. We've been teaching. We put about 15,000 people through our course. We have a few books out. Um, you know, we started mobilitywad.com a few years ago, which is really trying to get people a daily, you know, movement, tissue restoration practice. And then we really spend a lot of our time consulting with every national team you can think of. We're all over professional sports, from Major League Baseball to NFL, hockey, uh, AVP. I mean, choose a sport. And what that means is, not that we're bragging because we, we try to be pros, but is that we see a lot of dirty laundry. We get to go behind the scenes and see the problems that people are trying to solve. And we've really got this clear view that, you know, we can either continue our current model, which is wait until people break really badly and become injured and then see a physio or else start to put these interventions in earlier and try to turn the strength conditioning trainer into our allied healthcare network. And that's what we're really working on. And do you feel like there is a maybe lack of knowledge or lack of connection between the physical therapy world and the strength and conditioning world? And if there is, what can those two worlds do to kind of meet and to kind of mesh and, and uh, to be able to help more people? Well, the irony, of course, is that if you're a physio, when you, you know, you have the greatest education tools on the planet to be able to think at a cellular tissue level, right? Neuromechanical, you know, understanding of how, how things are working. If you are a strength conditioning coach or a fitness instructor, theoretically you are seeing contacting with people three to five hours a week, theoretically, where you're seeing all of the, the movement variables, right? You're getting, you're the person who gets to talk to them about nutrition and sleep and health and stress and warm up and cool down and strength. And, you know, you get to see all those things. The problem is, I think, is that the modern strength and conditioning hasn't, you know, we've been obsessed with, you know, for the last 20 years, it's, did you put more weight on the bar? Yes or no. You know, did you go faster? Yes or no. And it was what we call a task completion mindset. So as long as the athlete moved you know, more weight or ran faster, then we could say, yes, it's working, right? Sort of, we could be agnostic to movement quality, agnostic, you know, if you're benching or your elbows flared, you know, that's okay as long as the bench press went up. If you, if you jump and landed and your knee wobbles and you collapse and your navicular bone slaps to the ground and, you know, you have a big rotational shear moment on the hip, that's okay because, you know, you just had a, a massive PR, you know, what, what's the problem with physio, of course, is that we don't live in that strength conditioning world. And when people literally come in and see their physio, the physio says things like, oh, yeah, you shouldn't do that again, you know, and or only lift X amount of your head. Or, you know, because the physio language, the language of rehab is not the language of movement. And that the fact that for the last 20 years, I think the physios have been fighting a really difficult battle for legitimacy in the medical for-profit medicine community with research, with 
you know, to try to, to try to get direct access. We've really, the physios have taken our eyes off of these movement traditions. And, and that movement tradition is gymnastics and, and strength and conditioning and powerlifting and Olympic lifting and, and parkour. And we don't speak those languages very fluently. And so what ends up happening, we see, is that a lot of time, you know, people literally will be in, in pain for a long time. And then suddenly they can't do their job. They can't occupy their role in society whether you're the WHO model or naggy, all of a sudden then you go see a physio and the physio drops you into a completely parallel universe, you know, that is not based on any of the languages that you speak with no clear way back to sports. Hey, you're out of pain. Great. Good luck with your life again. Why? Well, because, you know, that we've set up ourselves as physios in this, you know, this, this for-profit medicine insurance reimbursement model where we don't, we address people's pain. We don't necessarily address people's function. And then the other problem I think on the physio side is that, you know, we're, we haven't done a good job of making a case for, you know, what we think is understanding how technique at the highest levels of sports and performance actually reconciles with what we would say is physiology, you know, and so that physios literally can't say things like you have incomplete shoulder function, you know, that it's full, it's within normal limits, it's overhead enough. And what we've got to do is we've got to, we've got to correct that. We've got to, as a, as a profession, as physios, reach down and do better education so people who are screening, unless you're a strength coach, physio, and those, those people exist. We know a lot of women and men who are badass physio coaches who are coaching and doing physio at the same time. You know, but the problem is until we reach down and hand over the non-skilled care, until we remove all of that non-skilled care from behind the paywall and empower people to be our eyes and ears, we're going to continue to be largely irrelevant in the strength and conditioning world. So, so you're saying as physios, um, we need to make stronger connections with strength and conditioning coaches? And I talk about fitness and strength. Yes, yes. Not only stronger connections, but we've got to do better education to help people who are actually delivering healthcare, who are delivering the training and the strength conditioning and the movement practices, to be able to to be able to do the the red flag. You know, hey, you know, you you know, we always ask this question: like, if you go for a run and your knee hurts, are you injured? I'm asking you, Karen. Oh, yeah, you're asking me? No, no, of course not. Not necessarily. Not necessarily, right? We call that an incident, right? There's something going on with the person's mechanics. Either they are a terrible runner, bad motor control, right, or their their tissues may be over-tensioned or over-stiff. And what we're seeing is, you know, they've had an incident. Something is hurting with a movement practice. So where do they go for help for that? Because currently the, the for-profit medicine model that we're, we ascribe to does not care for that person, can't care for that person. They're out of pocket there, and they're going to see anyone else besides the physical therapist. And in fact, they won't see anyone. They'll just take some ibuprofen and hope it goes away, right? And so what we've got to do is, is, is develop a simple process where that person can be empowered to begin to take a crack at themselves, talk to their coach, who is now going to be trained, right? Talk to their trainer about, hey, my knee hurt after a run. Great, let's take off the non-skilled care, stiff quads, missing some knee extension, short anterior hip. Hey, by the way, you don't even have full dorsiflexion. Let's actually look how you run, right? All of those things. And then, and then if those things don't work, boom, we go see a professional person. Now that the physio has become an allied and integrated part of the, of the movement profession. 
And now when, you know, this was an, kind of leads me into an interesting question. I think it'll go well with this, but um, this is a question from one of the listeners, and she said that um, she's kind of heard you say that there's a right way to sit or to move, and what do you think about adaptations for those with anatomical variations who maybe can't get to the positions that are necessary? So... Kind of, what are your so thoughts on anatomical variability versus "quote unquote" proper posture and "quote unquote" ideal movement? Like, because is there an n one hundred percent ideal way to move? Well, let's let's put it this way. Um, you know, we obviously see anatomical variation, right? And hundred uh, percent. When, when we so when we see um, when we see. Look, let's look at Norkin and White, right? The, the, the guidebook for full range of motion for physical therapists, right? You had to memorize all of those range of motion standards. You know, why is it that, you know, if you have 135 degrees of hip flexion, you can also squat all the way down? And I think the problem is if you have full dorsiflexion, you can also squat down with your feet together. So I, my, always my fear is that when we, we start waving the, um, you know, the anatomical variation, everyone is a special snowflake, right? Then what we, what we end up seeing is we call it apologetics, and that means that I don't have to worry about you being able to get into these foundational positions. Now, you know, the basics. I mean, are you telling me that as a human being you cannot squat down with your heels on the ground? Because every child can. So what's going on? Why, that, you, know, those, you know, what we see is that people are you know, spending a ton of time in this adaptation error, right? Let's put this for example. Harvard defines sedentary lifestyle as someone who sits more than six hours a day. And that's easy to accumulate, six hours. James Levine of the Mayor Clinic says, hey, let's try to sit less than two hours a day. New Zealand guideline for kids, less than two hours of sitting a day, right? So it's a public health issue. So what ends up happening then when we run into people who've spent decades wearing high heel shoes, and I'm talking about a running shoe, never barefoot, weak feet, short anterior hip, like don't have a movement practice, right? They exercise on the elliptical machine, right? They do a little walking, but the hip never comes into extension, really. Right? We never, ever expose full range of motion. And then all of a sudden, we're like, well, you know, you don't, you don't, you're excused from this. So we excuse from this movement pattern. And I think one of the things we want to say is, we, in our thinking, and you can, people, remember, if you, someone comes in for pain, right, or a problem, we're going to help them address that pain. Is the physical therapist's office the right place to teach good squatting mechanics? And, and what's interesting is that the only people making the case for, hey, there's not an ideal way to move, those people do not teach technique. Those people do not teach, you know, and see the universality, the, the consilience around every strength and conditioning practice on the planet. So whether you are at the Olympics or at high school or college, you're a powerlifter, Olympic lifter, there is squatting. Squatting ends up looking the same. It has, sure, there, you know, the difference of your femur is different and the difference of my femur. And, you know, maybe, you know, if I have a shallow acetabulum or a really deep acetabulum, you know, maybe at the very end ranges you'll, you'll tend to see you know, more reversal or some reversal of the pelvis in the bottom position. But, you know, to say that, you know, there's no ideal way is to basically then ask a bigger question. And that is, why do we teach technique in anything? 
you know, the technique, you know, how, why is it that all the best runners look the same? Why is it that zebras all run like zebras and elephants also run like elephants? We're the only animal in the world who comes up with a rationale that says, no, 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 there's a massive amount of variability in human function and it's okay because, you know, well, part of our model is saying, hey, look, we need to teach foundational skills and practices that scale. So, yes, you can turn out and walk with your feet like a duck. And you maybe you will be able to do that your whole life. But you know what the problem is? You can't run like a duck. You can't run fast like a duck. You can't jump and land effectively like a duck. You're not going to be able to cut like a duck. And so if we don't ask the question, does this technique scale up? Can I load it? Can I add speed to it? Does it reflect the physiology of the human effectively at these high, high levels? Then we fail to see why we should be teaching anyone anything ever. And what's interesting is that if you jump into a Pilates class and then jump into a yoga class, you're going to see that it's the same shoulder position, the same shoulder mechanics. If you Olympic lift, you're like, oh, it's the same shoulder mechanics. And it's interesting that, you know, all of the movement traditions have figured out what the stable physiology of the human is, right? And yet the working professionals are like, hey, it's within normal limits. That means it doesn't hurt when you do it and you can feed yourself and brush your hair into your bra. You must be good enough. And what we're, what we're always asking out, is, especially from the performance side, is it's these lacks of positional competencies and stiff tissue restrictions that they end are the reasons that so many of our athletes end up compensating and in bad motor patterns or end up with tendinopathies or these other little, uh, you know, apophysitis-like issues. And we, we're, we resolve those things in our performance language by restoring their normal indigenous mechanics within the range of motions that are standardized by Norton White or American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons or American Academy of Family Practitioners. Everyone agrees that the human body should be able to do X number of things. If you can't hold two dumbbells up over your head with your, you know, externally rotated, then you're not, you're not seeing, for example, the reason that we overpress the shoulder in that position for, for testing it as, a, you know, clearing the joint, you know, when we're clear the neck or, or look at something else. You're failing to see that, hey, that's the stable position when you, you jump at a, and block a ball at the net of the volleyball or you dive into the water right, you know, that you're throwing a ball. And, and the issue is that because we get caught up sometimes as physios and our practitioners, I only have 30 minutes, 45 minutes, an hour to solve a set of problems, it's incompleteness. I mean, if you are, I'm a, I'm a Maitland-trained physio, you know, and what we've seen is, remember the old Maitland models, I'd see you three to five times a week, that'd be amazing. Can you imagine actually seeing someone three times a week? Let me put it this way. Um, this weekend, I was at the IDEA conference, right, IDEA Fitness Expo, mm -hmm. talking to a young um, professional who goes on, she is a non-commissioned person, but goes on the aircraft carriers, to right, and delivers, helps deliver fitness to the, to the sailors. There's one physical therapist for 5,000 soldiers, right? How does that work? And she says that from the morning when they turn on the light switch, there's a line it goes all the way from eight to two and they never take a break and the line starts again. And so that person has got 20 minutes to diagnose, to see, to plan. And what we see is that the, the system remains untenable. And until the physios are actually out there, and it's not that you deadlift, it's that you understand that we're talking about sequencing the spine more effectively, right? That we teach a, we teach an efficient hip hinge, 
that, you know, I mean, that's the thing. It's not that physios, it's not we're saying exercise solves all problems. We're saying that, hey, movement organization, you know, you know this, is one, this is one of the things I love is that people are like, hey, there's no science that shows that, you know, posture dysfunction causes pain. And, and what I want to say is who's talking about pain? We're talking about the fact that if you have a kyphosis and forehead on neck, like you're, you clench your jaw, you're, you know, you're, you have incomplete shoulder range, your breathing is compromised, you're going to compromise downstream at the pelvis, right? And now you have a pelvic floor problem. The, the adult diaper industry in the United States is a $1.2 billion industry. It sounds like we should not be physios, we should be making adult diapers. And the question is, what's going on? You know, what does it mean, I think, foundationally to be a human being? What are the things that we should be able to do? Right. Right. You know, if you right. ask someone, you know, right, and that's and that's really where we want to get to the heart of this. And, well, and, and and don't get me don't get me wrong. We we remain agnostic about the way you want to train, but you better have a movement practice, or at least be able to express full range of motion in the motor control and full range of motion if you plan on going fast or lifting heavy or going up and down stairs or picking up your kid. Right, and and I, I definitely agree with with a lot of that. I think um, the what what don't you agree with? Well, I think the, you know, if you're, if you have bad posture or, you know, if you're sitting incorrectly or, or sort of the example of like the clenched jaw all the way down to the pelvic floor, I just think that's a little simplistic because I think a lot more goes into it. Um, like what? Let's talk about it. Let's talk, because I, I, here's the deal, right, is that we're seeing that there, you cannot refute the evidence right now, the amount of science about the problems on the human being of sedentary lifestyle. No, absolutely. I there's, mean, there's every, I, I agree, like every system, you're talking every system is, is affected there within, within the human being because of prolonged sitting. There's no question. Um, and I think that every physio would agree that, of course, we don't want our, if our patient's coming in to see us, we don't want them sitting for eight hours a day or 10 hours a day. We want them to get up and move and and even if it just means standing up at their desk and, and moving around, walking a couple, it doesn't mean they have to go out for a run every hour. Um, totally agree. But totally it certainly agree. means that, you know, just to get up and move around. Or even if, it, it, but the same goes, what about people who have to stand all day? Still a problem. Oh, yeah, Right? Yeah. It's just sort yeah, of I, this, I, this well, lack but, of, of um, lack, variability in movement. Yeah, lack of variability. I agree. But what I'll tell you is that you know, you're, we're, we are designed to be in motion, right? And so it certainly feels good to sit down. But, uh, you know, the, I think one of the issues that we're going to have to struggle with and, and come to grips with is, you know, we need to be able to take this 30,000-foot view and stitch together through the process of induction, you know, what, what a bigger picture is. So there's a really good science that says that if you can't get up and down off the ground without using your hands, your mortality rate goes to the roof, right? That mm -hmm. quick, simple mm -hmm. test, mm -hmm. which is really interesting. It's really a test of, you know, some trunk control and hip range of motion, right? I mean, that's really what it is, right? Sure, and, sure. You know, what, so what happens when people can't sit cross-legged Or, you know, and the, the question remains is how did we get there? Is it, is it the human being is such poor design that most of us are in pain, that we have unchecked back care, Right, uh, unchecked back pain. More ACLs have been torn in the last 10 years, and like, I mean, it's insane. And the, the questions are, what what is the underlying process underneath that that's leading to that? And I think you know, when we when we take that 30,000 foot view 
and start to look around and, and start to ask those questions. Well, you know, in Japan and in cultures that toil it on the ground and sleep on the ground, hip disease drops to almost zero. Lumbar disease drops all to zero. Fall risk in the elderly drops almost to zero. Brand new study in the neuromuscular, uh, in, the, uh, in one of the big journals that came out yesterday, that, um, or the day before, that basically said, hey, you know, aerobic function does not preserve neuromuscular function in the elderly, only, only strength training. Right. Strength. Yep. yep. So, so what, what kind, how much? I mean, these are the questions we need to have, right? I mean, we're still seeing, you know, three sets of 10 reps. You know, so, I mean, that's, that's still the, the standard. So, you know, I, I think that there's a lot of work to be done. And look, I, like I said, I think all roads lead to Rome. Eventually, we're going to have a conversation about breathing. We're going to have a, com, com, you know, a conversation about spinal, being able to create intra-abdominal pressure and stiffness. We're going to have to have a conversation about the fact that your T-spine is stuck bent. Now, that maybe that's important to you now, but it's going to be important to you, especially in the athletic population. So maybe we need to decide, hey, you know, you're never, ever going to do anything athletic your whole life or functionally exciting your whole life. You're, you're fine, you know, wobbling along on your, your you know, your bald tires and, and poorly aligned wheels until you break. And then we'll just deal with it when it happens. Or we can start to integrate these things into the things that we're already doing because people are doing the right thing. They're going to the gym. We have more gym memberships sold in this country now in the last 10 years which happens to track the obesity rates almost one for one, you know, than we ever have before. And I think that people are realizing and trying to be interested in their own health and their own, and their own pain. Yeah, I, but I it does have true. some interesting moral applications to kids. So, so why don't we integrate movement processes and, and, you know, like, you know, are you arguing that or are we advocating that people shouldn't roll out their quads because they're stiff? Cause it's not a problem. No, no, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I, I think that, you know, certainly people need to, to move more. I mean, it was a platform of Michelle Obama's, right? The Let's Move campaign. Um, and because, it didn't work. Because they're it's still seeing, not working. Yeah, and it's, it's, like you said, if you're looking at it from a 30,000-foot view on down, there is certainly a lot that needs to improve, certainly within the American culture. Um, but when you're when you're the physio or the the physical therapist working one on one with the patient and they are maybe fearful of movement or if they don't move ideally they feel like they're broken and then won't move at all and so I think in the language when you're speaking to uh, your patient whether they're to, I have a 12 year old girl who has Charcot Marie Tooth disease she does not move ideally in any way shape or form. That being said, we still work on squats and we're still doing strength training because that's what she needs with the notion that, yeah, maybe she can't keep her feet facing forward when she does a squat. She just, for her, neurologically speaking, it's very difficult. And so I think that there's always going to be these outliers um, within the ideal movement. But, but what happens when you, a patient comes to you and they feel like they're so fragile or they're so broken because they can't move ideally? Does that make sense? Oh, well, I, I tell you what, I don't think that happens. We, I, have, I don't see that. You know, what I see is that people are in either so much pain that they're afraid to move, but not that, hey, I'm afraid to squat poorly, you know, and, and, and understand that a movement practice is, all, is a moving target. I mean, all you have to do is be sleep deprived, have a child, work two jobs, have a horrible commute. Let me tell show me what happens to your beautiful hip function after three months of that. You know, and and I think that's the point is that, you know, 
one is that movement practice is is a is a moving target and dynamic as we get stiff as our, we get stressed as yeah and we, it's day to day as we get Everybody's injured it's day to day you know but also you know we we are we i mean people forget that we actually run a physio practice and we see people with massive chronic pain problems you know and like you know people come in with after you know status post radio frequency ablation and on morphine and you know don't even know can't roll in bed can't sit can't stand right what's the way out of that you know this is a person who's gone through you know hundreds and hundreds of physio sessions seen every doctor on the planet you know what at some point this person has to continue to move so how do we desensitize how do we restore confidence i mean you know i agree that there's a continuum and you can't put you know we, we have two athletes with CMT at our gym, right? And, and you know, of course, and when we see kids with, you know, cerebral palsy, mm-hmm. right, and damaged motor control processes, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't negate the fact that good squatting looks like good squatting. And when we talk to people that post-surgery or injuries and we have an adaptive athlete class at our gym where literally we have, you know, there's 30 athletes missing one or more limbs, you know, what it, what it says is, hey, let's work to our available possibility today. And that always is in the direction of idealized mechanics, stabilized hip, right? It's not just necessarily that, hey, we're just going to let you compensate yourself into a, or into a knee replacement, but let's, let's work with our available range. Let's work with our available tissue excursion. Let's work with our available motor control. And, you know, and when people come in very low work capacities because, you know, of a disease state, mm-hmm. that doesn't negate the fact that good positions and good mechanics underlay that. And I, I think one of the interesting things is that we, you know, it's easy to say, hey, let's just get some work done. You know, you know, we are, you know, our, my wife and I are on our nonprofit Stand Up Kids is one of Michelle Obama's, you know, partners. We, we work with the Let's Move. And yet, research came out like, you know, four weeks ago or six weeks ago that just basically said, you know, childhood obesity has been unchecked in spite of the money we're throwing at. So what what are the underlying processes? And so if you I mean, you come at us because you're saying, hey, like, it's okay to sit. What I'm telling you is that we are rotting from the inside out because we are not reflecting the movement variability that we should, right? Just like you're saying. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's also important for people to know that it's not a one-size-fits-all and I think sometimes when people hear of, of you have to squat this way and you have to do this that way, that people think it's a one size fits all and they're trying to put them, oh, hey dog, and they're trying to put themselves um, into, into that very specific movement uh, pattern. But from what I'm hearing from you is I don't think that's what you're saying, but maybe that's something that gets misconstrued in the public. Do you know what I mean? Well... You know, I mean, here's here's one of the deals, right? If you have, you know, if you are rounded through your, you know, your your teeth fine, and your lats are tight, and your scapulas are flipped over, if I ask you to have full overhead range of motion, eventually your the head of your arm is going to run into your scapula, right? And that's called impingement. I mean, we you know, go ahead and come with me to one one of one of the times when we work with the Marines, and you'll see that impingement is a huge problem. It was such a big problem in in some of the Naval Special Warfare that for a long time they even talked about resecting the acromion early, preventatively, because it was such a problem. We'll just go in and take that head of the acromion off now. And 
you know, so the, the question is, if someone has, you know, a tissue restriction that prevents them to have full range of motion, is that okay to excuse that or to recognize that that's where we are today? And let's see what pieces we can optimize on the other side. And so, you know, clearly when you're missing full ankle range of motion, right, basic dorsiflexion, you don't have any, and you squat down and your feet turn out, or you come up on your toes, that's the compensation. Mm -hmm. And so it doesn't mean we don't squat, but we recognize that, hey, you know, we're restoring normal range of motion, but normal range of motion has to be expressed as a movement, right? And that's, that's one of the things. I mean, why is it we mobilize joints in the first place? right, to restore their normal range of motion. I mean, one of the reasons we do PAs on the spine, maybe not to mobilize the joint, but to desensitize, right, and restore just small intravertebral motion because that helps to desensitize the painful area, right? Right, you do those really basic, low-level, great ones, just tiny, tiny, you know, super soft, touching resistance, barely coming out, and people are like, ah, it's better now, right? Desensitization. And, you know, with an idea of, you know, trying to restore to normalcy. I mean, and the question is, if, if it's not normal, then what does normal tissue feel like? Mm-hmm. How, do, how do we say anything can be normal, or how do, how do we have standards towards anything? Yes. If we can't ultimately put that back into the language that matters most, which is the human being's movement. When you work in the hospital, what do you grade? You grade bed mobility, sit to stand, able to walk, walk in a certain time. Timed up and go, one of the great mm-hmm. standards for fall risk is really a measurement of power. One squat, walk three meters, turn around, squat again. Right? I can scale that up to work with my Olympians, which is let's front squat heavy and run 400. It's mm-hmm. the same. And I think we're just not seeing the continuum of movement as for what it is, right? And, yeah, no, I, yeah, I see what you're saying there for sure. Um, And so do you feel that, you know, I had a conversation with Chris Powers um, a couple of months ago. He's out of USC. Um, Of course. mm -hmm. And what he said. Viva viva look, Chris Powers. Yeah, he's great. And he um, said that he felt one of the things that physical therapists need to be more proficient in is just watching movement. So instead of learning all these special, getting all these quote-unquote tools in your toolbox that you really need to kind of look at movement um, and any movement. Forget about working with high-level athletes or a high-level military. Working with, you know, someone like like me who is just someone who works out regularly or maybe someone like my mom who doesn't really work out at all but she walks and, you know, she gets, she has to go up and down stairs constantly and so I think maybe physical therapists are, and and need to be a little more proficient at looking at movement, which then kind of takes you into these screening tools, right? Now, Chris Powers is working on a screening tool um, that I don't know when that's going to be ready for public consumption, but it's, it's a very, very good uh, screening tool. So there's other screening tools like the FMS and things like that, that there's been a fair amount of published mm-hmm. evidence in the past calling into question their initial claims of being able to predict injury. So how do you apply that and and even those tools if you're even using the FMS and what do you recommend people do? If, if, you know what I mean? Well, if, that, if that FMS yeah, oh, isn't, sure, isn't sure. doing well, what and, it was promised you, to do. 
That's right. How, how are we, how do we come to understand, as movement professionals, and let's, let's just say that we are actually not tissueists, right? That we're actually movement professionals, and then we actually teach movement. Like, we're not just giving short arc quads and extra rotation with the TheraBand, right? Those, you know, those things never, I mean, unless you're, you know, you swim, right, with your, le- you know, or you're, you know, you, I don't know what you do. I mean, that's the backhand wind up for a, a tennis swing. Um, you know, the, the question is, how do we come to understand what it is we're seeing? And I think that's a great question and one we should continue to struggle with. What's interesting is, the, you know, even just the, the premise that, hey, forget the elites, right? Well, we don't want to forget the elites because the elites tell us what full function is, what, what, what full expression of the movement pattern is so that we can scale it back because the fundamental piece, I mean, a piece of research came out within the last few weeks and just said, by the way, teaching people to deadlift as back rehab is as effective as any low back rehab protocol, right, in terms of long-term outcomes. And guess what? Why should that surprise us? Because teaching people to sequence and stiffen their trunks and perform a hip hinge is AKA called bending over. I mean, that's, that's what it is we do, right, as human beings. And when we say you and me and my mom, I mean, my mother-in-law trains with us at our gym. And in one of the things that we, you know, that we teach there is, is saying that, you know, if we strip out the machines, which are strange aberrations of, of modern fitness, right? The, like the Cybex machines and things like that? Yeah, 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 yeah. because, I mean, right, we, we, we're sitting down, we're, you know, the, something is stabilizing, and it's, it's putting weights back in your hands. That doesn't have to be heavy weights, just weights. Like, you know, picking things up off the ground, carrying them around, putting them over our head. And that is what it really is what it means to be a human being, right? Can I climb? Can I up, go up and down things? Can I descend up and down stairs? Totally agree with it. The question is, how can we understand what it is we're seeing there unless we're actually teaching those skills day to day? And it's a skill process. It takes a long time. It takes time to learn, to learn that. the skill. 100%. Yeah. yeah. So it, 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 is, the, is the, you know, three physical therapy sessions sufficient time to, to reinforce a motor pattern or to teach a skill sufficiently with enough follow-up and practice. I mean, let's look at adherence in physical therapy and let's talk about the elephant in the room, that adherence is like 20%, 17%. You know, the, it's a mean, did you do your exercises? Oh, God. You know, and the, the problem is that, you know, we need to be able to see, you know, I, we always talk about, hey, look, I can sideline you and do a little shear test on your lumbar and see what's going on. And, but ultimately, if you can't stand up and maintain control of your lumbar pelvis relationship as you move through space, as you descend, as you squat, as you go to the toilet, then all of my correlates for movement really don't matter anyway, right? It's really about the expression. Can I see what's happening when people are actually moving, which is the expression ultimately of all these movement correlates that help us as clinicians understand what's happening at a segment level, at a, at a small component level. Right, and so and we, Chris is, oh yeah, go ahead. Chris is absolutely right. We've got to get better at moving, and that movement happens to be really one of the excellent ways of seeing that. It's difficult to understand what's happening when someone does a cable crossover or some kind of Cybex, you know, in and out adductor machine. Right? It's a lot easier to see what's happening when someone is squatting down and, and you know, when someone is hip hinging, when someone is putting something over their head, when someone's doing a plank, 
right? Those that that is the language of actual the, the building block foundational language of actual movement, and we need to get definitely get better at spotting that. Completely agree with that. So how do I feel about FMS? Well, yeah. No, or any screening tool is that it's a tool to help a clinician or a or a coach understand what's happening at those levels because a lot of traditional strength conditioning programs were very light on the movement quality, right? As long as I sat down and did my bench pressy things, right, and I did some kind of cable pull down, you know, it feels like exercise. It feels like work, and I'm definitely sweating hard, and it's definitely very hard. You know, I think curves is a great example, right? Like, we're like, you're moving, and then you're like, you're moving in a really terrible way, really hard, and reinforcing a bad pattern, and, you know, that means... I think what we're trying to do is, is create a set of tools that helps us understand more efficiently, more quickly what's going on because we recognize that we're not coaching day to day. You know, so I'll be over you know, at the World Athletic Center, which is now known as Altus, which is head by a coach named Dan Fath, right? And they have 25, it's the premier track and, field, um, track and field training center with more living athletes in the United States. It's the number one track and field site in the U.S. And, you know, when you listen to Dan Fath, who was working with, you know, these runners, right, and, and throwers or sprinters, what you'll hear Coach say is that every day is a movement screen. Every day is an assessment. And that's what we're, what we're trying to do in the strength and conditioning world, to say, hey, what are we doing today? What are the sort of variability or what are the, the benchmarks of complete function in the, in the context of what we're doing? And that, that means the screening device gets tuned into the training stimulus, right? Because otherwise, what I've seen around the FMS, and, and, and Gray would, would agree that the FMS is a, is a low-level catch-all, so you can identify quickly the big red flags. Oh, holy crap, I have no hip extension. There's no interrotation in that hand behind back. You know I mean? Like, you, you can quickly see the problems, but the problem with most screening tools is that people run people through an assessment, here are your 17 deficits. Good luck. Let's put this in the, in the drawer and it never comes out again and we don't actually help people solve those things. And do you think that, because in my opinion, I feel like the FMS, it's just a screen. Yeah. It's just a totally. screen. Absolutely. And, and I totally. think that people have kind of taken that to being, this is my evaluative tool. Oh, yeah. Do you know and what I mean? And, and, or, or oh, yeah, oh, because I, because you, your I, numbers below fourteen or whatever, it means you're going to get injured when that's just not the case. No, and and Gray would be the first person to yeah. say that 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 total score doesn't matter. What matters is the individual component, right? You, you're lacking. You know, ultimately, I can make the high level mark that hey, look, if you if you are missing shoulder extension, right, or some of these other interrotation and the shoulder, which you get expressed in some of our, our, our movement assessments, then I know you're not going to be able to stabilize the hip as effectively. I'm going to see compensation in the, in the trunk, right? Because you have to have, we, we want to see full function upstream and downstream. You, I mean, we, that's why we assess the joint upstream and downstream. The regional interdependence model tells us that, you know, my ability to keep my thoracic spine stable over my pelvis does have implication on how the knee works. Right, and my ability to stabilize through my glute med and all my short ro hip rotators, that's for Chris Powers. You know, and so the idea here is, you know, we want to be able to quickly catch the main problem. And, and what you'll see is that, you know, the FMS, you know, TPI, all those great guys, 
You know, they're saying, hey, look, if, you're, if you don't know much about movements, then we've got to give you a starting point so you can start to see the problems. Because right now, you know, people can't see any of these problems. You know, it, we're still just, we're still giving each other high fives because we, we're squatting. You know, there was, there was a great um, uh, advertisement for Kaiser, and it was like, you can get exercise anywhere. And, and it's like a guy is pushing his kid on the swing and does a squat, you know, in between, mm-hmm. and the girl's like, whoa. And she starts to do a squat. They both squat terribly. He has a massive reversal. She, his feet are turned out. She's valgus, right? I mean, so we have to, it's okay to say, hey, look, it's great that you're moving. We don't expect movement confidence to happen overnight, right? This is a process, but eventually we should all be moving better and better and better because that's what it means to acquire skills as humans. It takes 10,000 repetitions as a baby to, to integrate a, a movement pattern. I mean, that means that we have some tolerance in the system to buffer some less than idealized mechanics. Of course, of course. Over time, we should be refining that. So it doesn't mean we're always saying, that's good, that's bad. We're saying, hey, that's why we use the language incomplete. Great, we're squatting, now we can have a conversation, right? Yeah, yeah, and and, you know, when talking about these screening tools and people will, let's say they go through them and they notice X, Y, and Z is is not uh, ideal or perhaps not what they're looking for, they kind of go into correct, quote unquote, the corrective exercises. So, what are your thoughts on the trend toward this in the fitness world? Well, I, I, this is my my as a let me put my strength conditioning hat on. People, it's easy to go down this rabbit hole of corrective exercises, right? And forget that the point is that we still need to get people stronger. We still have to do some conditioning. We need to work on tissue quality. Right, there's we got to get some work done, and 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 I think what you know what we can say is a, a corrective exercise is just a, is what we call a skill transfer exercise, right? That that you know teaching a stiff-legged deadlift, right? I.e., reaching to the back of my car to pick something up with my legs straight, right? That that is a a little bit more simplified, simplified version of of, you know, of a, a more extreme hip hinge or a more functional like hip hinge with a knee bent. And I, I think, you know, the, the problem is, you know, we, we're seeing people forgetting that the, the heart and soul is that we need to work. And we have some tolerance built in to see movement errors and not everyone has to be perfect. But practice doesn't make perfect, practice makes permanent. And so at least people are beginning to identify movement deficiencies are trying to correct that movement quality. Right? We can't do enough of that. And it's okay in a, you know, in a strength session, you know, one of my, let me, let me, I mean, this is one of my greatest corrective exercises. It's called jump roping. You know, I mean, you know, I mean, squatting is a corrective exercise. I, I think what you'll see is that all the physio strength coaches out there in the world are like, yes, you know, um, a push up is a corrective exercise. Right, a deadlift is a corrective exercise. A press, mm-hmm. a strict press, a push push. Those are all corrective exercises. And and oh, we're not going to press with a barbell. We're press with dumbbells. Corrective exercise. So you know, I, I think on the one hand, what we know is that we see real tissue restrictions, and no amount of magical thinking and exercise selection is going to resolve tissue stiffness, or in you know what I mean, or joint mm-hmm. capsular restriction. And then we can start to overlay what we call a position transfer exercise, which is rolling on a foam roller through your thoracic spine to improve your overhead positioning in your swimming. You know, so 
the, our only beef is that people, you know, become a little zealous and, you know, they're like, oh, the cross ball will fix all problems, you know, corrective exercise will fix all problems. And we take our eye off the most important thing, which is movement that, you know, move, moving well should be a goal for the rest of our lives. That's why we advocate for people to not do yoga on a DVD, to go find a yoga teacher, because a yoga class is a, is a, is an a, adaptation for a stimulus for adaptation and corrective. And that's when that, when a yoga instructor sees your incomplete position, comes over and fixes you, that's, that's what we're she's doing, right? Or he's doing. So we're, you know, she's running the screen and seeing the correction on the motor control and then sees a problem in the group and says, all right, here's what we're doing. Bert, we take a right-hand turn and all of a sudden there's a whole bunch of flows and patterns that help us resolve a tissue restriction or a problem or a, a incomplete position or stability, right? And that, that's why you should be following a person. And if you jump into a Pilates class, you're going to see the same thing. Mm-hmm. So if you jump into a good strength conditioning program, that's what you're going to see. And until the, the problem is, you know, a lot of us are getting our, our movements, you know, from 24-hour fitness, from crunch, from orange theory, right? And everyone's working hard now. We're seeing much, much harder intensity in people's training, Barry's boot camp, CrossFit. Mm-hmm. Now we can say, great, you're doing it. Let's make sure that you have full range of motion to do it, right? And now, you know, because do we, do we agree that pull-ups are important? Yes, no, you don't want to use pull-ups, great. You train pulling overhead somehow, fantastic, right? But do we also agree that if you can't put your arms over your head, you know, then what are you doing when you do a pull-up? You know I mean, that's, that's what we can start to establish benchmarks of range of motion into these foundational positions. You know, yes. you know why your downward dog sucks? You don't have overhead position. Right, right. Yeah, and, and I think a lot of that is lost. A lot of the... Yes explanation the explanation behind why and i think this is where physical therapists really have an advantage um is is the reason between why this exercise carries over into x y and z functioning or movement within your life or or what's valuable to you um versus just doing an exercise because when you looked at their assessment tool or screening tool it said well now you should use this exercise well i i would say two things one i'm not necessarily a believer in the fact that the physio knows exactly why you know we're doing always you know because when we see people we only see detrained people who are pain sensitized we come to think that well wow they they bike they got a lot stronger in their you know you know in their legs you know, we know that biking doesn't necessarily make strong legs, but if someone's so detrained, you throw anything at them, they get better. But I would say physios have the potential to understand the connection between the physiology. Absolutely. Right. Yeah, yeah. And, and, but, okay. but I also would agree with you that on the other side, you know, we have to start somewhere, right? We have to begin the conversation somewhere. And, and believe it or not, it shouldn't even begin with the coach or the trainer. It should begin with the parent. It should begin with the teacher because – you know, where are we beginning to catch these kids? And, you know, remember I said we have to be able to scale our thinking up into speed and load and power, but we also have to be able to scale forward and backwards in time. So how should we train children? You know, how about this? When we, you look at any kindergartner, they all run the same. You'll see them, barefoot, shoes, agnostic. They all, they all lean and run like little sprinters in the Olympics 
all of them, 100%. Halfway through the first grade, go ahead and watch this, and you'll see, and this is, this is backed up by all the observational data from all the running experts and motor development experts, you'll start to see heel strike development about halfway through the first grade. It doesn't exist in kindergartners, doesn't exist, but there's something that happens where we see a fundamental alteration of a primary movement pattern, and heel striking is not functional. You cannot do it at speed. You cannot do it in the absence of shoes, right? It doesn't exist as a primary locomotion pattern. And so, you know, it doesn't even use the Achilles. So the question is, why does heel striking exist? Why is it okay that we allow it to exist when we know that in the long haul, it sets us up for the most dangerous sport in the whole world, which is running? Yeah, and, and you know, I don't, I don't have any children, and, and I guess I have a niece, so now I'm going to be a little bit more – I have a niece and a nephew, so I'm going to be a little bit more watchful as to how their movement patterns are changing next time I see them. Yeah, yeah. And, um, that's, and that's totally what we want to do. We've, we've got to help our parents be able to see it, our friends' parents be able to see it, so that we demystify, you know, movement complexity. And I think that, and that's really what we need to We need to keep working towards simplicity, which isn't throwing a screen on everyone. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm 42, and, you know, I had how many, how many gym teachers had me fold over and screen for scoliosis? I mean, mm-hmm. it's just non-trained, middle-aged man was able to see my, my spine went left or right when I forward flex. You know, I mean, that was, that was a pretty powerful intervention, right? Right. And, well, um, you know, that's, that's you a know, ho- Hopefully, hopefully uh, things, things have changed in, in school systems now. And at, at, or hopefully these school systems still have uh, PE classes. Um, but that's a whole other thing and, and, and a whole other podcast. Um, now, I, I know that you had mentioned earlier, um, and I'm sure you've gotten this question a million times, but uh, that you mentioned earlier that you do have a full physio practice and you are seeing patients uh, or clients, whatever, whatever you want to call them, coming in with painful conditions. So how do you reconcile the sort of pain science or utilizing that biopsychosocial approach um, versus just a strictly biomedical approach? Um, and, and if, well, you, and, and if yeah, you are well, doing I, that, I, how, I how are you doing that with your patients? Well, first and foremost, you know, recognizing, you know, you know, talking, expert clinicianship is a conversation between, right, is a set of compromises and conversation between patient or person and practitioner. And, you know, agree, you know, uh, never taking in consideration the person's lifestyle, the, the demands of their nutrition, the amount of stress that they're under is, is poor teaching. You know, it's poor, it's poor movement. It's poor, it's poor, it's poor practice, practice. So those things are absolutely integrated into this. And, you know, in all, you know, we have orthopedic clinical specialists on our, on our staff. We have, you know, pelvic floor specialists who also happen to be Marines, who also happen to be high-level coaches, who also, you know, I mean, we, we have a pretty diverse staff, on, you know, on our, on our physio practice. And, and I'll say is that everyone is always thinking about, you know, sins. We're always thinking about stage of problem. You know, it's not, it's not just a simple mechanical problem always. You know, we get people who come in and we're like, how long is your, you know, your shoulder been hurting? They're like, since Vietnam. And we're like, oh, my God. You know, but we're also able to reconcile the fact that, hey, we can scale. At some point, we're going to have to get people out of pain. But 
disuse is catabolic and we, we're going to have to begin to get some use into the system to see the system upregulate. I think even Yonda was talking about this, you know, that what we saw was that, you know, we had pain pathways getting mapped with movement pathways and that giving someone a clear or a brand new motor pattern where they, you know, they're, they're squatting without a collapsed foot and their knee is out. Suddenly, maybe they're off a little hot spot on their knee where they've worn cartilage thin. They've normalized the joint mechanics there. Maybe, you know, because uh, we teach them neural flossing, you know, the, the, you know we, we get what goes on at the, at the, 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 the cellular level. We also very much understand that we're, it's a conversation about saying, hey, this person isn't just painting and working out hard, but we, we're going to have to, you know, maybe only put them on the bike. Maybe we're just going to do some simple drags. Maybe our, our home exercise prescription is to walk five minutes three times a day. You know, I mean, that's, that, and, and that I think is the, the key here is the, the thinking that, you know, we're not always just immediately loading people and being knuckleheads, but walking is still scaling higher level function. Well, sure. So, and, I mean, you know, yeah, yeah, certainly using. So I, don't, I, don't, I, don't know, I don't know how you would treat anyone without thinking about mechanisms of pain. What is the pain generator? What is, the, you know, the severity of this? How, you know, I mean, I don't, I don't think any of those things happen. You know, right. and we, we, you know, and our, you know it, but what I can tell you is that someone just, you know, has intermittent pain with a, a push-up. You know, and they're and you know that's not a chronic pain condition. That's just a mechanical restriction that we can easily take off. You know, but I think I think for us is that you know everyone's always like, hey, it's not always a movement problem. Well, what is it then? I mean, if it's not, you know, CM charcoal tooth or or you know Guillain-Barre or, or some serious problem underneath that, then at some point, you know, we feel like a lot of the musculoskeletal problems, right, very simple musculoskeletal problems, are, are of our own making unless they were catastrophic or pathological in nature. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And I think it's uh, imp uh, important to note that a lot of people may have these sort of uh, musculoskeletal issues or movement problems um, that may revolve around fear avoidance and pain catastrophizing. And that's kind of where the work of, and kind of knowing the neuroscience behind pain, where the work of, you know, Mosley or Butler or O'Sullivan will come in. Um, sure. To, to or kind Shacklock of, or anyone. Or Michael Shacklock. Right. Yeah, all those, all those people, they're, they're really great. And you know what's so interesting is this past year in one of the largest manual fair in IFOMPT, right, which was in Glasgow, um, the keynote speaker was, one of the keynotes was Laura Mosley in the AAOMPT, is that right? AAOMPT? Yeah. Yeah. Um, the keynote is Peter O'Sullivan. So there is certainly this big shift of, of going from a strictly bio, and biomedical to biopsychosocial. And I think what it means is that you're not necessarily changing what you would do. We still want to get people to move using graded motor, graded uh, movement techniques. Like you said, if someone comes in and they've had, you know, a chronic pain condition or they're unable to, let's say, move the shoulder the way you, the, in a way that's safe, you're not going to say, you're not going to give the guy 50 pound dumbbells and say, start pressing it over your head. Not, not the best thing to do. Um, but instead using this sort of graded movement approach along with plausible definitions of, of the neuroscience behind pain. And I think it was David, 
or Adrian Lowe or David Butler, who are all manual therapists, by the way, who said it's not that we're necessarily changing how we would approach the patient with whatever tool we're going to use, whether it be manual therapy or, like we said before, manipulation or mobilization of a joint, but rather the explanation behind it um, has somewhat changed, you know, versus... Yeah, and I, does that make I think sense? that's... Yeah, I think we've gotten a little bit more mature. It's, we don't believe it's just a mechanical restriction, and that's that's the end of it. I mean, yeah, you know, yeah, the, the human being is, a, you know, like, but at some point, we're also going to have to talk about that your crappy diet is like pouring gasoline on the fire, and that the fact that you're stressed and don't sleep is also making your chronic pain condition way worse. A hundred percent, yeah, a hundred percent. So what are we going to have to talk? Well, guess what? We do talk about downregulation. <laughs> I mean, you know, that's that's one of the first things we talk about when we back pain. When you, you someone comes to a chronic back pain at our at our facility, we teach you know breathing mechanics. We teach you know you know intra-abdominal pressure and stabilization sequencing, so people have a strategy to actually brace and move through the day, right? So they can they realize we're like, wow, I was pain free. I did that. We're like, great. Yeah. Your or goal meditation. is to try to replicate that at home. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Meditation yeah, techniques. Um, yeah, for sure. All, all you know, of that we, stuff. We, 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 and, and I think the, 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 the bottom line, though, is it doesn't, it, like you say, it doesn't change what we do. But, you know, I, I, here, here's one of my critiques of the Internet is that, you know, <laughs> if, if, if you just take a snapshot of what people are doing, then you, you don't have a fucking idea what the whole practice looks like. You know, you can't see it. Right. You know, I mean, we, we put an open call, like any physio on the planet, come see what we do if you don't believe us, you know? Come see how we're talking. And, yeah, and you know, I mean, and we you have, have... And, and I want to I see your model. Show me your model. Let me read your book. Let me see your model. Let me see how you're teaching. I'm, I'm looking, I'd love to read your book where you try to integrate these things because the problem is, you know, if we only ever see this, this, this population of really, really sensitized, low-level people who are suffering, Remember, uh, you know, um, you know, Peter Edgelow was, a, you know, came to my school a lot. You know, grandfather of thoracic outlet syndrome, and we saw him active straight leg raise, the contralateral lower extremity, and light someone, you know, symptoms up. You know, that's how sensitized the nervous system yeah. gets, right? I, I know it. But, I li I've lived through it. <laughs> so how do we get people out of that hole? Right, you know and I, mean? I think that's, point, that's and that's right. where movement, and that's where good pain science education, like. I can say for, for myself, what was so interesting is I had a, a long history of chronic neck pain. For I just woke up one morning and couldn't get out of bed, long story short. Um, but what, what did you do at night? I mean, what happened? You mean, did you, you nothing. know, sleep? I just slept and woke up and could not move. Could had to like log roll off the floor. It felt like my head was like a bowling ball ready to roll off my spine. Um, which is, I think, really scary. Um, and, and I am a, a PT, right? So just think if you're like the average person who doesn't have a lot of this knowledge. I mean, it was frightening. A at any rate, I ended up with a, a pretty unfortunate chronic pain condition for, I don't know, for many, many years. Um, but through all this, I was still... I was I was a, a fast pitch softball player in an all men's league in Central Park and had no problem doing that. Yet I, there were times where I couldn't go to work or I couldn't move my neck and and what 
was a big help to me was was getting over a lot of fear. Like I would say, oh, I, I can't carry a grocery bag home from Trader Joe's, which is across the street from me, by the way, um, because it's going to hurt. Yet I was able to, I clearly had good range of motion and everything else. I mean, I was playing fast pitch softball. Granted, I didn't have to bat, so I wasn't running the bases. Uh, men's league, you know. Um, but uh, so what really helped me was was really learning more about kind of the science behind uh, the neuroscience behind pain and pain, fear avoidance, which I think was, in my case, for me, the biggest thing. That being said, doing movement helped decrease that fear avoidance. So I think, like, if someone told me, and it was someone, it was David Butler who was like, we need to get you out of these fear avoidance behaviors by having you do things. But if I didn't have that explanation behind it, I wouldn't have done it. Does that make sense? Sure. I so think that's, it's, that's it's, very reasonable. Yeah, but, it's but all at about some, that. At some point in the conversation, I'm going to be like, wow, high-pitched softball, on your mouse, nonstop, high-level thinker, writing, how much sitting did you do? You know, what, what, did your movement, what did your movement practice look like? Yeah, right? I mean, how, I was... How, how did you end up in that spot in the first place? That's a good question. So we want to be able to go... We want to go from cause to effect and effect back to cause, right? Because, right. you know, clearly being in pain for years, things, we start to see cortical smudging, mm -hmm. you know. I mean, how many sodium ion channels get deposited around that kink in the neural tissue there? I mean, you know what I mean? What, you know, did you have a history of asthma? You know, I mean, yeah. you know, do you grind your mm -hmm. teeth at night? I mean, like, let's just check the boxes of all right. the things that contribute to that that horrible life state that you were in. Yeah. But at some point, what we have to ask is, boy, did you have fundamental rotation on the shoulder on that side? Because if you didn't, then your neck is always going to be compromised. And, and if someone couldn't see it in the movement practice, because I, I think here, here's the mistake is that we're not saying that, well, again, we remain agnostic about the way you train. But failure to see the relationship between shoulder stability mechanics and the compensation at the cervical spine is a fundamental breakdown. And of course, you know, I mean, and if you've worked in baseball or worked with unilateral athletes or throwing athletes, you know, and people who live on the mouse, you know, you're going to see these changes in fascial tension. You're going to see changes in, you know, stiffness on one side, in, you know, poor stability, you know, and, and a result in a just simple, it could have been a simple mechanical fault. You know, that, you know, a tweak trigger, I don't, again, we don't know what it was. You could have had, you know, intermittent neck cancer, but what it did lead to bad. was, <laughs> right, but, what, you know, it did lead to a really, really big drain on the quality of your life. And yeah. what, we're, what we're advocating for is saying, hey, look, can we connect the dots earlier so we can say, hey, look, your T-spine was stiff, you know, your behavior at work. You know, is that you're, you're in these habitual patterns that, you know, are unstable and untenable and you're sitting all day long. And, you know, how, how can we remedy those things? And that, that's why posture assessment is nice. I mean, in Kaiser, forward head on neck is one of the quick phrases that you assess people with, right, in the, in the computer. But we don't really make sense of what that forward head of neck is. The forward head of neck means that you're going to see poor shoulder mechanics because we have a malalignment of cervical thoracic relationship. And then it's just your, your the rotator cuff and the mus associated muscular soft tissues of the shoulder have to compensate. That's the way it works. Yeah, and so, I but think... But it, it doesn't mean that it's only mechanics... That's right. ...or only pain signs. And that's, I, right. I, that's where 
pain science goes crazy, you know, and, and, and Greg Lehman is, is a, a credit to the profession saying, hey, look, let's not think always that it's just mechanical. You know, it's not. It becomes complex. And we tell people all the time, hey, look, I know you have an image of a disc protrusion in your spine, but we don't think that's necessarily the generator of your pain. Right? We have this conversation all the time with people. You know, I'm like, hey, your nerve is getting pulled past this crappy closed down facet because you know, oh, you're overextended all the time, right? You, your diaphragm is acting like a tensioner on your nervous system. I mean, you know, your, the thoracal dorsal fascia, we know, and your back can be a pain generator for a lot of specific low back pain. Right. So and let's I mean, stop playing hunt and lesion and let's start giving inputs to the body. Yeah, and, and, and I mean, I don't think there's any question most people would agree that pain is neurogenic in, in, its, uh, in its output, certainly. Um, but I think, you know, you have such a large platform, which is amazing, by the way. And I think it was... I, sorry, I have this, like, huge cat that keeps jumping on my computer, so I apologize. Um, <laughs> So you have you have this huge platform that you've built, which is amazing, and, and maybe we'll have a few minutes to touch on that in a second. But I think a lot of times maybe people aren't seeing this side of you that like, hey, we we do talk about the, the science behind pain. We do agree that it's not always that it's not, you know, a hundred percent a mechanical issue. So I think maybe hearing more from that, you can, like you were saying, you know, you want to reach this, you have the ability to reach a wide swath of people, more so than any other, than most other PTs I know, maybe with the exception of someone like Laura Mosley or Butler or something like that. Um, and I think to hear that would be really nice. I think it would be a nice, um, it would be nice for people to hear that versus thinking that if they're not doing X, Y, and Z, or if they can't do X, Y, and Z, they're in pain, therefore it's kind of their fault. And I think when you have people who have had uh, more persistent pain, at least I can say certainly for myself, and I think that studies also can probably back this up, but it, when you look at and, and you say, oh, well, I can't do, I can't move this way right now, or because I can't move this way, is that why I'm causing more pain? And I think it, it turns into this sort of personal blame game. But someone like you with such a big platform, to hear that, hey, you know, you do practice this way, I think it would be great, and I'm happy that, you know, that you, that you express those ideas. And I think it's important for people to hear that, because you can reach more people than most. Does that make sense? Sure. You've really, uh, built, like, a, you've really built a great thing. So, you know, I think that's something that... I know I wouldn't mind hearing more more from you is is that hey you know we actually do this is this is I do see this is what we do this is what we do at my clinic you know um, I, I I think that would be a great addition uh, and to bring in you know kind of how Greg Lehman is is sort of reconciling the biomechanics with the pain science I think is is something that a lot of people need to hear, not just physios or trainers, but I think the general public as well, to to help with this epidemic of of pain and to perhaps decrease the uh, again opioid abuse and and that's I just did an interview the other oh, day yeah. with this woman from Stanford talking about opioid abuse um, uh, for painful conditions and and to know that yes we can move. But we can still work in these this biopsychosocial model and not be so strictly biomedical. I think is really important, really vital. So, 
Well, you know what? When I find, I totally agree with all the things you said. And what I would say is that most physios give good language to biopsychosocial models, yeah. but they actually their actual practice is biomedical. 100%. I, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and I think and, that's, and, that's and, where... The, and and that's, I don't see, I'm like, so as soon as a physio steps out of the physio lane and goes and works with, you know, uh, we have 120 girls we coach for, uh, you know, volleyball. Um, most of them are under 16. 90% of them report self-reported chronic pain. Who, who has pain in their shoulder? You know, 10% of the girls. How, who has knee pain? Another 30%. Who has back pain? You know, I, I don't think we're recognizing... Where the intervention has to come from, yeah, and, then, and I think I think you know, it does need to and, come. And, and, you know, our, our, our come movement earlier. towards our movement towards stand-up desks, for example, is really about you know trying to solve a you know this biopsychosocial component that people aren't moving enough. You know that we just have you know congestion. You know, you know, stiff tissues, poor breathing patterns. I mean, choose something that's important to you, but at some point. Physios have to get out of the clinic and go start working if we're ever – otherwise, we're just going to keep waiting for people to break. Yeah. And it looks a little bit like – this is, sounds terrible, but it looks a little bit like a Ponzi scheme. Until, until we put ourselves out of business, we're not doing a good enough job, you know, catching all the things that can be caught. Because right now what we're saying is it's not preventable. There's no research. How can you say that? You know, and yet every strength and conditioning coach is like saying, hey, look, we do this for a reason because it shows in our model that we have fewer injuries, right, in the strength and conditioning side. We've got to move the past that so because bad things do happen. People do have to wear utility belts and body armor and sit in a cop car all day long. They, you know, they, they do stand, you know, overstand in our, our – they do have history of injuries they do have stressful times and carrying your baby and poor nutrition. There's a lot of real problems, but there's also a 50% line where we feel like, hey, we can clean a lot of this stuff up if we start moving into that wellness category, right, which yeah. is that performance category. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and you know, I think Adrian Lowe is also, and the Institute, uh, International Spine and Pain Institute are actually developing um, some pain education that's appropriate for children. Um, and I think that'll be a big help, you know, uh, just to get sure. to to get at these kids when they're young, so that you know they're not freaking out if they stub a toe or they have a twinge of back pain or do you know what I mean? And that they know that it's okay to keep moving and that it's okay well, to you know. So well, I think you know, that'll yeah, be absolutely. interesting. And yet, also, we need to tell people that, it, you know, if your back hurts all the time, that's not normal. No, that's you know, not the normal. Resting yeah. state of, the resting state of the human being is pain-free. There's going to be pain. But it tells us about some aspect of our physiology or our biomechanics. It's a cue. It's a breadcrumb that tells us something is wrong. Mm -hmm. But what we've done is we've just, we've, we have done two things. We've, we've said, take some Tylenol, take some ibuprofen, take some codeine, right? Or we just say ignore it. And, you know, and what we've seen is, People ignore it at their own peril because yeah. eventually your body, your brain says, "Hey, I'm not going to get your attention until I shut you down to get right. your attention." Yeah, I mean, right? pain, pain I mean, is a hard Eighty percent. That's right. I like that. Eighty percent of runners are injured in a year. Eighty percent. Mm -hmm. You know, and um, you know what we have to ask then is, you know, how many of those people are actually in pain? Because injury means what? That I can no longer run, and I'm going to actually self-report it. And and I think what, one of the things that we can do is take off all the low-hanging fruit by telling people that, hey, look, 
it's okay to make sure that your calcaneus moves, that, you know, you can throw a band on your hip and improve your joint capsule function, you know? Yeah, yeah, no. Okay, those things are okay. So, yeah, you know, we, I, we I teach think people, so too. We teach people, you know, rotation, counter-rotation. You know, we're like, hey, look, you might just have a pelvic fault. See if you can fix it yourself before you freak out. You know, it's just a, it's just a little mechanical fault in your pelvis. This is not the end of the world, you know. And, and uh, you know, if people are really uncomfortable with that, but we think that people are smart, and if we're going to educate them on pain science, we can also educate them on a little bit of biomechanical tissue restoration. Yeah, agreed. And and I think that's that that's what the biopsychosocial model is. We don't take the bio out of it. It's just maybe, you know, adding a little bit more of the of the psychosocial, I think, for a lot of PTs. But I think that's changing, and I think that's a good thing. And I think the latest, like I mentioned, all these manual therapy conferences sort of, and, and the popularity of, of some new TED Talks and things like that, I think is really working in, in, that, in that direction, which I think is great. And I think that's how, as far as a physical therapy, as far as PT, I know that's how I, I mean, I see a lot of complex regional pain syndrome patients. Um, yeah, it's, a, it's, it's tough, but, you know, it, a big part of it is getting them moving, you know, and, and getting them walking more. I mean, I have a patient with CRPS who did 15,000 steps two days in a row. I mean, that's pretty amazing. And, and she made that's it, right. you know, she made it, she did it. She's not like, you know, nothing bad happened. And I think, you know, using the using movement and 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 working on strength at the same time given the explanations from you know more of a, maybe a, a neuroscience approach um tends to work very well um anyway but and it's and it's okay absolutely to have a continuum and that's yeah. one thing that you know yeah and, and when you know clearly if you think we're advocating heavy deadlifts and box jumps and jump rope for someone with crps right then then you are an idiot, and yeah, and you know not. what I mean. Yeah, yeah I would hope and, not. Uh, I would hope you not. Know, you know, in the same way that when you have you know a fever, you take some Tylenol, right, or a cold, you don't go see your doctor. You know, there's some things that you manage. You have a cut. You know, we you know we teach people basic first aid, but we teach them basic first aid. You know, and that's okay to also teach people basic first aid, which means we're not doing a good job teaching basic first aid around the body to everyone. Yeah, and I think, you know, the, the goal of any physical therapist, hopefully, is to give their patient a locus of control so that they can go out on their own and that they know, okay, you know, I have a basis of why, why my pain is happening. I know what movements I can do. If, let's say, you're a chronic low back pain patient and, and now you're feeling really great, but maybe you have a flare-up once a year, which is normal, not uncommon. But instead of running to the emergency room, running to your doctor, running right. to a pill, the hopefully your therapist in conjunction, and I mean, listen, I work with trainers, I work with nutritionists on a daily basis, and with the physician, that that person now has the locus of control because of the education you gave them, whether it be the pain science and movement, to be able to handle these flare-ups on their own, thereby, you know, obviously taking down uh, overall uh, medication use and 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 the uh, medicalization of this of this flare-up episode so I think it's listen pain is a complicated thing movement is complicated and then you put them both together and and, and, and talk right. about and an individual person who has goals and values and and things that they have to do in their life and 
and it's not an easy job. No, and uh, it's okay. It's okay for it to be a skill. Yeah, Managing it has your pain to be. is a skill. Sure Learning is. to move is a skill, and uh, it's okay for these things to be skilled. We just need to stop pretending that you know, as long as I do the yes no machine and leg extensions and some, you know, something that smells like exercise, that's enough. It's not. It's not enough. It's not enough to be on the elliptical. It's not enough to walk. Not enough. Those yeah. are the basics, but uh, we can we can become more sophisticated. Yeah, yeah, I agree, and I think we can also uh, maybe sometimes we don't give enough credit to our clients that they oh, can that 100%. they can be the sophisticated client. They can ask hard questions, and and you can you can give them more sophisticated answers, and I think that's okay. Yeah, one hundred percent. Regardless of age, even. Um, okay, so one one uh, other question. Then I want to I want to get to PT day of service. But um, like I said before, you know, you've really built a great platform, and you can reach thousands, hundreds of thousands, and millions of people. So, uh, what would you recommend to, let's say, other physical therapists who who kind of want to reach more, who want to impact millions? You know, what what oh, well, what, did, I think what, I, what yeah, are your that, recommendations? For marketing or for, you know. Well, you know, we don't, we never set out to reach millions. We set out to solve a set of problems in our own community. You know, when we started Mobility Watch, for example, you know, I already had a thriving, really busy practice at the gym just because word of mouth, mm -hmm. right? People were, you know, failing, at, failing out of physio, failing out of, the, you know, coming in. You know, we, you know, we play a lot of cleanup, you know, for a lot of bad care out in the world and poor misinformation. You know, just like everyone else does, and uh, you know, without you know, we're and what we had been teaching a course to to strength coaches and athletes about the way their body works. Just here's the basic fundamental mechanics. Here's how you can improve your position, right? Improve your effectiveness, and uh, it may or may not affect your chronic pain. We started we started to deal with. We just made one video, and I put, I sent it to one friend. That's how it started. I made a video about saying, hey, why can't you get all you can squat? Maybe we can, you know, take some of that, you know, that nutation out, you know, that jamming of your, your sacrum into your, you know, into your, your, the pelvis, and let's just squat down. Let's, let's spend 10 minutes a day working on this restorative position. And uh, we start with a 10-minute squat test, and then that blew up. And what I recommend is saying, hey, look, the, the world has changed. People are looking for advocates. They're looking for, for help. And, um, if you're interested, you know, go train in your local gym, go, you know, talk to people in your local tri community, your, your triathlon club, your swim club, work in the places where you already work. And I think if you set out to, you know, you know, to, to influence a bunch of people, you influence no one because it's, it's not, you're actually, it's, it's not authentic. It's not real, you know, solve a set of problems, be of use to your community and people will find you. You know, we, um, we started something on even through our website called, um, the MWOD list, Mobility WOD list, and what we're trying to do is connect good practitioners, you know, like an Angie's list, right to people so that they didn't have to sniff around and play Russian roulette. You know, I always ask people, like, who's your physical therapist? And they're like, what? I'm like, you're going to make a mistake. You're going to get injured. You're going to tweak yourself. Who do you go see? And they're like, I don't have anyone. I'm like, you I mean, you have a hair person, you, but you don't have a body person? That's, <laughs> That's ridiculous. That's true. That's true. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And so, I mean, so th that's the way to do it is to really, you know, like all of our patients have our cell phone numbers. 
You know what I mean? I mean, we, we still are thinking HIPAA, but people message us. They send us their MRIs on the web. I mean, it's crazy how people are using their information. But, you know, and obviously we're, we're super protective, but we also, you know, it, it's rare that we have someone who steps over the line. Usually we're like, why didn't you text me that your knee was hurting? You know, why, why didn't? Because in a five-minute conversation, I could give you some things to take a crack at before I saw you in the clinic. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think that's how we want people to just be of service. Be a rock star in your local community. Go, you know, you're already, you better have a movement practice, your physical therapist, which means you're already having the Pilates or yoga or CrossFit or powerlifting or something, swimming, right? Then, then go, go be a rock star there. So sort of start small and be authentic. Oh. And, and I think most importantly is you have to put yourself out there. I think there's a lot of people who uh, will say, oh, I, you know, how come this person's doing this? And this person, you know, b boy, they've really built this up and I can do that. Well, you have to right. like, act, you, you have to act you, to do it. You have to put you yourself out it. there. And totally I think you have to it. put yourself out there without fear of being criticized, which I'm sure you... Oh. You're Good luck well, with that. Well versed so, on that. Um, you no, know, we 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 try to be very transparent, and I I can't think of many physios who have put up entire treatment sessions on the web. You know about a problem, right? You get a snapshot into how it works. You know we try, and that's okay. It's okay. You know, start a local community. You know, one of the things that we advocate for is you know part of your practice get out of the for-profit medicine. Not, not that you're not trying to make a living, but get out of the insurance. Take cash. Go start a little clinic on weekends helping people with their feet. You know what I mean? Like, they're, they're, you know, run, it's easy to put hang a shingle. Physical therapy, you know, insurance is cheap, you know. And, uh, you know, go start. Go start that building that little practice, that little book of business. Yeah, and, and you know, I've, I have a cash-based practice here in New York, um, and I have a little bit of a niche in that I go to patients' homes or to their offices. Um, and again, it's all kind of been word of mouth. And I think it's important, though, to note that it takes time. You know, like you don't, yeah, just, well, you don't just hang up a shingle and all of a sudden you're seeing 30 people a week. Like, that does not work that way. You know, for me... It, works, it definitely works, it works less that way. Yeah, it and, does, if, and, if, and, and if it does, then more power to you, man, because that is incredible. But like, would I? But there's, would two, I always there's tell two extra days is, a week. I mean, yeah. you, have, you work if you work four and a half days, or four days, or five days. You have two extra days a week. Start there. You Listen, know what I mean? You don't have, I, that's I think, what I did. I think I, we're the best. Physio is such a malleable practice, and and such a wonderful education. Go become a, a an actual teacher of movement. That's my other recommendation. All the young physios, we say, hey, look, we should. You know, can you teach squatting? Can you teach Pilates? Because if you really want to, you know, develop a heavy practice, the person that they trust is the person they're seeing three to five times a week. You know, and they're like, hey, my shoulder hurts. You're like, great. You know, I, I can give you a, a five-minute, like, check this out now. I'm not going to touch it. I'm going to show you some things to try yourself to see if it helps. If not, I want you to book an appointment with me, right? Mm -hmm. And there, there's no problem with that. I mean, that is, that is exactly – we want to tighten the loop so that people don't have to come in and tell their entire life story to a stranger, right? So that you can begin to, I mean, you've got to, you know, people have to leave your session understanding what you think their problem is, what they're going to do about it, what their next step is, right? How long it's going to take to get better. I mean, 
you've got to have a plan. And, a plan. Uh, and, the, yeah. and, and if you know some things about how that person moves in their lives already, the plan is more efficient. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, so what about the use of social media, things like that? I mean, you know, if you're, if you're a PT or, or, or whether you're a movement professional or, or a physical therapist, like you've got a pretty busy life, right? So how do you integrate all of this other stuff? How do you integrate, you know, all of across social media platforms and YouTube and things like that? Because that was obviously instrumental in growing your platform. So how did you do it in well, the beginning? I suspect now you have some help. We have some help now. <laughs> but, but in the but beginning, you know, in the beginning. We, didn't, we didn't, in the beginning there was not Twitter, didn't exist, right? Mm -hmm. Facebook was just, a, you know, a nascent idea. You know, um, we started this thing, and, um, you know, when we started making, you know, just filming what we were seeing in our gym and how we were solving it, these movement-related problems, and spotting the incomplete mechanics, right? You know, if you look at Supple Leopard, for example, the first half of the book is what we've been talking about. Can you spot the movement deviation, the incomplete motor pattern, the, the developing motor pattern? Can you see it? That's what people forget. The first half of the book tries to integrate movement theory with the physiology. The second half of the book is some simple mechanical fixes, right, if that's the problem. But we put motor control in that piece first. And we started just filming on, our, on the, a camera, downloading it to YouTube. It took forever. YouTube was just beginning, right? It wasn't even a thing. We couldn't even upload yet from, um, you know, we started Blogger, which was free. Are you we sure couldn't even upload 42? from the yeah, from the, we couldn't upload from when, the iPhone. When did you start this? Like when you were 20? Pretty much. You know, and so what's amazing is that, you know, we, we, you know, the iPhone didn't even have video when we started. And when they, then it got a video camera, then you could load up to YouTube directly. You know, we just started to be of service. And, you know, and I would, my patients would be like, I'd be like, hey, I'm not going to show your face. Can we, can we just show you rolling your quad? And they'd be like, heck yeah, I can show it to my parents. This would be great for me. I have 10 friends with this problem. We started like just doing that, you know, protecting patients' identities, mm -hmm. you know, filming how we were solving problems, so that people could begin to see it. And then I just, just started a little network, and that really is it. And I understand it's, you know, if you work a busy day and have a family, there's not, you don't need to tweet, but you can get on the Twitter sphere, and and develop relationships with other physical therapists and see the research that's being put up and the information that's shared. And, you know, it's easy to start build a little website for your friends. You know, and you can start to house, you know, we started MobiliWatt because there were so many low pieces of fruit that were just laying on the ground that we could solve. And I was like, what? You took a day off from work, got a doctor's note so that I could come in and tell you, you know, that your rectus femoris was stiff and that you loaded your knee first early in squat. Like, these are things that you should know by yourself. You shouldn't have had to come and pay me to do that. So let's try to take that stuff off the table. So when you come in to see your physio, you know, you can be like, you know, hey, you know, I know my shoulder translates forward a little bit when I do this internal rotation. My T-spine is stiff, and, you know, I'm putting a ball on my external rotators. What do you think the problem is, Doc? You know, and your physio is going to be like, heck, yes, this is my person. You know, and that's – instead of starting from scratch, we're getting to people rolling as they talk to their physio. You can be that person who starts to empower their community. Yeah. Whatever, whatever style you like. Whatever style you like. Okay, so – Let's talk um, about PT Day of Service. So I'm part of the PT Day of Service team, so I definitely want to talk about this because your organization, uh, you and your wife started, correct? That's right. Uh-huh. Stand Up Kids is now um, partnering up with PT Day of Service. So 
explain a little bit more about Stand Up Kids and how that relationship came about. Well, the, the short story is with Stand Up Kids is that you know we were seeing movement related. We were we I did a Google talk back in 2010 about death, being deathbound, and you know we were working in corporations and professional sports and and talking to these companies about you know you know improving healthcare by getting people to move more, right? And and that was, was very simple. It's a very simple you know intervention. We're saying, hey, look, you don't need a standing desk. You need a box on your desk. And what we realized is that we hadn't applied that thinking backwards to our kids and our kids were sitting all day long and we were seeing all these movement patterns. And, you know, we, let me, let me tell you about a screen. My wife and I worked the, the sack race at field day and we saw kids that didn't have enough range of motion in the hip to get into the sack. And I'm talking like 50% could not pull their hip up past 90 degrees to be able to step into the sack. Now, I, you can talk about all the individual variability in, in, in hip structure, but when you see a bunch of third graders who can't lift their leg up to get into the sack, red flag should be going off, right? Then kids couldn't hop. They couldn't physically extend their hip because the anterior hip structures were so short, right? So they had motor pattern and, and disinhibition, and you know, they couldn't hop. They were folded over and would fall down, right? And we were just like, what is going on? So we approached our teacher, our principal, said, hey, we have this idea. We would like to, to have stand-up desks in our school. Here is all the research. She was like, do it. And uh, we, we flipped a couple classrooms. We flipped a few more classrooms. Last year, our daughter's elementary school was the first all-standing, moving school in the world. Kids can sit on the ground to work, remember, which is – what we're supposed to be doing as human beings anyway, and then they have desks that have a fidget bar and they can move, be dynamic, and um, and that has now we partnered with Donors Choose in New York, and that mm-hmm. has moved. We have over thirty thousand kids standing now as a function of stand-up kids, and uh, you know the we see this as our most important intervention. That you if we we won't talk about all the research and all the the, the sedentary literature and and what's happening with kids, but and, and adults alike. But I can tell you that this is a really cost-effective intervention that just takes the cigarette out of the kid's mouth to begin with. You just kids come in, they focus better. We have we had zero pushback. You know, we have 500 kids at the school standing. Next year will be at our middle school. We have multiple school district, you know, schools in the district that are adopting it, and uh, it's rolling. And this is what we need to be doing. We need to take the lessons we see in physio, in sports and performance, and actually apply them to life because that's the point. Right, and then how did you hook up with PT Day of Service? Well, the PT Pinecast was a great, you know, uh, was our was our entree in, and you know, and, and I really this this notion that um, you know, PTs bless their hearts. We bless us all. I mean, they want to serve, and you know, I think we saw the the, the truth behind this incredible organization, Day of Service. And uh, it was just a, a natural fit to try to support this organization to get physios out into the community, you know. Yeah, absolutely. And and for those of you, if you're wondering, it's uh, Saturday, October 15th is PT Day of Service. You can go to ptdayofservice.com to either sign up as an ambassador or as uh, to sign up to uh, be part of PT Day of Service. And you can also donate uh, to, they're looking at three different, you can donate to three different um, non for profits and one is stand up kids. Am I right? That's right. That's the deal. That's right. Yeah. We're, uh, yeah, it is the deal. And, um, you know, and what, like our model, you know, people are like, well, how do I, because we get a lot of contacts, how do I get involved with, you know, stand up kids? And we're like, it's what you need to do. Do you know a family? 
you have a kid in school, start there. We see that the classroom is the functional unit of change, really, in the society. And if your teacher can teach math and reading, they can teach squatting and movement and game playing. And, and honestly, if we, if we prevent a lot of com compensatory motor patterning, compensatory functioning, we don't have to fix as many things in the future. Now, that's what's amazing, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I think when we get kids in a movement-rich environment, we just solve a lot of problems automatically. And, yeah. and the, you know, it's like the human being is wired to be functional. And then we, we overlay this kind of modern lifestyle of technology and sedentariness and tech. And, you know, and we're like, well, I wonder what's happening. And, you know, it's, it's easy to change. Yeah. And where can people find out more about Stand Up Kids? Uh, Juliet, my wife, built an amazing website, standupkids.org. And uh, there are lots of great downloadable PDFs and um, infographics, and you can you know, really get started in your own community. We our goal in 10 years is to is to have all the you know the, the public schools in America with standing options for their children. Awesome, awesome. Well, very very noble cause, and I'm sure a lot of parents are probably thanking you at the end of the day. That's for sure. Oh, the boys, the boys who aren't getting in trouble anymore. The people. The children with ADHD diagnoses, the you know the, the athletes. I mean, it's it's really remarkable. You know, I mean, if this matters to you, I mean, I think there's some research that says like you know test scores go up when you stand. Okay. Well, whatever, That's whatever's important to you. I figure. <laughs> and I would have, if you'd asked me, I would have been like 125. What was that? You there? Yeah. Oh yeah, no, yeah. nothing. Oh okay, I thought so, she was you know, chiming in. Oh sorry. No, 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 no problem. Um, okay, so, you know, we're going to kind of wrap things up, but before we do, would you like to leave the listeners with any final thoughts, any closing remarks? No, uh, it's an exciting time. I think, I think physio, you know, is swinging back around. We, we did the work we needed to do to be a serious profession. Um, you know, we have a brand new CEO of the APTA. Yep. Um, Justin you know, Moore. Justin, Justin Moore is such a baller. Um, it's really a good time to reinvest back into the, the physio, you know, profession. And, you know, we really respect the people who've been carrying the torch forever. You know, the, I think culturally we're getting ready to, you know, start to take more onus of responsibility, shift loci of control back into ourselves onto, you know, being able to fix these things at the, at the home level. And we just got to continue to be better advocates for that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, I thank you so much for, for coming on and, and for getting through all these questions and, and criticism. So I thank you very much. My pleasure. My pleasure. All right. And everybody, if you want to find out more about Kelly and what he's doing, you can go to Kelly. Uh, easiest way is mobilitywad.com. Follow us on at mobilitywad on the, the Twitter sphere. And, you know, uh, Come, come hang out with us in the gym. Come hang out with us uh, in the clinic when you're in San Francisco. Give us a swing by and a high five. Great. All right. And everybody, thank you so much for listening. Really appreciate it. Have Oh, and if you want to follow me, you can follow me at Karen Litzy NYC on Twitter. Um, and you can check out all of our episodes at podcast.healthywealthysmart.com. All the stuff that Kelly and I spoke about today, I will have links to everything on there. So... Uh, thanks so much for listening. Have a great week and stay healthy, wealthy, and smart.